Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're concluding our series today, I've Got Questions, with a message entitled, What Am I Made For?, which we'll talk about gender and heaven. So let's turn our Bibles to Genesis 5, verses 1 to 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. This has been a different week here at Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we call this one-week series, I've Got Questions. We wanted to answer some of the questions that people ask, things about which they need clarity. But because we're a Bible-teaching ministry, I've tried to tie the questions back to the wider truths that are found in the Scripture. And today, as we tackle the last two questions, you'll see that again. The first question is the question of gender and sexuality, and it's a question that gets frequently asked. The second is the question of heaven and the eternal destiny of all who hope in Christ. I'll put them under one title, what am I made for? That is, what am I made for here and now in this life and then for eternity? So let's start with the question of gender. The question I was given is, how important is gender and sexuality? Now, I suspect the question has been asked because, I mean, we live in a culture where this topic is not only discussed frequently, but because we've been told that gender identity is not necessarily the same as gender. We're frequently told that you might be born a male, but you might identify as a female, and therefore the question of gender is a fluid question. Now, I began this series by saying that we exist not for ourselves, but rather we exist for God. We're created to glorify God and find our pleasure in Him. But now I will say that we are also created by the design of God and that it must be our delight to surrender to His design when He made us. Now, that's what we might discover when we examine what the Bible says about His handiwork when He made us. I'm going to suggest six things that we learn about gender from the Scripture. Number one, God created us as male and female. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, please notice several things. Male and female is a part of God's good creation. Notice also that all of the human race is placed into one of those two categories, male and female. Now move forward to Genesis 5, 1 and 2. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Now the Hebrew word for man is the word Adam. All the descendants of Adam, those in the image of God, have been created as male and female. So that's the first thing we learn about gender. The Bible claims, and it's affirmed by our basic biology that all human beings were made by the Creator as male and female, and that this is a part of God's good design. Number two, there are prescribed roles attached to gender. We call this complementarian theology. It means that men and women are fully equal, yet they play complementary roles. Well, how so? Well, first of all, it's so in marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33, it tells us that marriage is a relationship that's based on Christ and his church. The man role plays Christ and gives leadership. The woman role plays the church and submits to her husband. Hence, we're clear the role of the husband is to lead, and from Genesis 1, the role of the wife is to be a helper suitable for him. We don't find that demeaning. Indeed, we find it life-affirming. Number three, our gender comes with a divine command. 
not a surprise to any of us that gender includes, well, our sexuality. And God makes demands as to how we use our sexuality. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Therefore, God makes demands on the use of our body. He forbids that we use our body to engage in sexual relations except those that occur within a lifelong covenant of marriage. According to a number of passages in both the Old and New Testament, homosexuality is forbidden of us. So is sleeping with anyone not your lifelong marriage partner. Why? Because with gender comes a divine command. God not only created our gender, but he commands us to use the gift of gender within the restraints that he has placed upon us. Number four, our appearance then needs to be so arranged that expresses both our obedience to the designs of our creator, but also that celebrates the joy of being either male or female. And interestingly enough, that's what we find in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 22 verse 5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now that same principle is carried out in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11 speaks about such things as the length of hair as it relates to gender. I'm fully aware, as are you, that these things are culturally conditioned. But there is a supra-cultural application to these passages. Dress in such a way that highlights your gender distinction, not in such a way that blurs the line. In our culture, we might say, men, don't wear eyeliner or makeup. Women, wear clothing that celebrates your femininity, but do so as women of modesty. Number five, understand the male and female deportment or the male and female manner of conduct. You know, I find the Apostle Paul fascinating in that regard. Listen to what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Then several verses later, in verses 11 and 12, he says, For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So notice two things. First, Paul is not saying that this feminine role and this masculine role is mutually exclusive. For men can act with gentleness. But he does demonstrate that with the feminine comes the gentleness, the affection, even the sacrifice. And with the masculine comes a commanding sense of direction, a tendency towards exhortation, the call to urge someone on to action. What we're saying is that we can see in Scripture both for men and women to be trained, or should I say discipled, to be male and female. Then finally, the sixth principle. Both men and women need to rehearse their respective and unique roles. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's, that's a mouthful. So much more could be said. You know, I could speak about how to teach this to our sons and our daughters. I could speak about how to be countercultural in a world that has forgotten its creator. But given that this is how God has created us, what do we now make of the internal differences within gender? Look, we all know of men who, who seem more effeminate than other men and women who seem more masculine than other women. What shall we say because they are definitely that way by nature? And I think we need a wider definition of masculine and feminine than has sometimes been described. To be a man is not necessarily be someone who, who likes living outdoors and who likes wrestling a bear to the ground and skinning it and gutting it with his bare hands. And by the way, nothing wrong with that, but there's a wider range of manhood than some have understood. And it's certainly not the full definition of femininity that likes pink and decorating. And again, nothing wrong with that, but, but you can be a tomboy as a girl and be truly and fully a woman in every way. So much can be said about expressing the full range of human diversity within the bounds of God's established patterns. So much more could be said. But the basic Christian truth is this. We find freedom when we live within God's designs for us as our creator. And we find bondage when we break his pattern in our creation. And we need to find ways of reinterpreting the healthy diversity in male and in female, not through gender confusion, but by understanding gender in a more fuller biblical way and then in joyfully embracing our Creator's design for us. And furthermore, let's joyfully train our boys to celebrate the joy of becoming a man. And let's joyfully train our girls to celebrate the joy of becoming a woman. Biblical Truth Engaging Culture. That's the purpose of Back to the Bible Canada's new television program, Truth in Life Today. Join Dr. John Newfeld as he engages the questions of life and faith with insightful Bible teaching and invites special guests to discuss the truth of God's Word as it relates to issues of our culture. Issues like the value of life, finding comfort in the tragedies of life, the importance of understanding the Bible, the truth about heaven and hell, and God's plan and purpose for your life. All this and so much more. So join Dr. John Newfelt every week for a new episode of Truth and Life today on Joy TV, online, or by signing up for the Back of the Bible Canada mobile app. For more information, visit truthandlifetoday.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. Since I did an extended teaching on heaven, I've frequently been asked by people about heaven. What is heaven going to be like? Indeed, I once sat with a dying Christian man who was a friend. He told me he never thought about heaven. Well, I'm no longer astonished by that because I've come to realize that many Christians have not been trained to think about heaven. I realized that shortly after I became a pastor. And for one, I stood at the dying bedside of many and I've struggled with what to say. Should I just silently be with them? 
Should I read scripture? And which scripture should I read? I did pray with them, but how should I pray? Should I pray directly about their upcoming death or not? And as I began to mature in my pastoral ministry, I learned to pray for the dying, but I also realized that a great deal of the fears that surround dying was the uncertainty about what came next and about the nature of heaven. Most believers, I discovered, have only a vague idea about it, and that was because they'd never been taught. They didn't know what the Bible had to say about heaven and why it is that they should desire it so much. And as I reflected on this reality, I also reflected upon the reality that that in seminary, I'd never had a course on the subject of heaven. And as far as I know, no such course had been offered in the curriculum. And furthermore, I have in my lifetime heard a great many people saying that Christianity is so much more than simply, as they say, pie in the sky by and by. Uh, It has to do with what it means to live for God here and now. Well, all fine and well until you're on your deathbed and all that theology just melts away. And furthermore, when I began the study of the matter of hope, I found out that in the New Testament, all examples of the hope of the gospel is, is a hope that's bound up in the future promises of God, be found in eternity and in heaven. So where do we begin? Well, let's start with Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Let's begin by describing the new earth. There's a debate among some Bible teachers about whether this earth will be destroyed or renewed. You know, one good Bible teacher said, God hangs onto his fallen creation and salvages it. He refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sacrifices his own son to save his original project. That would mean that this earth is not temporary. And Paul seems to indicate exactly that when in Romans 8, 21, he writes, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Just like we are redeemed, so also will this earth be redeemed. But what of Peter's vision of the heavenly bodies passing away with a roar and being burned up and dissolved? Well, that seems to indicate that, as we've all heard it said, it's all just going to burn, baby. And yet, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says in Matthew 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then two verses later, in 5, verse 5, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It seems then that it is our destiny to inherit the earth. We remember the promises of God found in Numbers 14, verse 21, that the earth will be filled with the glory of God. Is that the eternal future of the earth? Yes, it is. I want you to imagine Jesus' body stepping out of the tomb. Is it a new body or is it his old body? Well, on the one hand, it has to be a new body because his old body was tortured and mutilated and killed. And he steps out of the tomb, and as he does so, it's not in weakness. That is, he doesn't stagger out exhausted and depleted of blood, but in glorious strength. But on the other hand, it has to be his old body, because where is the old body? Well, it's raised. It didn't dematerialize. It didn't stay rotting in the tomb. And furthermore, he still bears the marks in his hands and his feet from the crucifixion, and he uses those marks of crucifixion to show his disciples when he proves to them he's alive. But again, on the other hand, it's a new body for the lines of pain and the weakness and the subjugation to sorrow. All of that's gone. That's why the disciples both recognize him and at the same time, they struggle to know if it is him. 
In truth, the body of Jesus had been transformed into a body that's not subject to death or to dishonor, but it's now an eternal, perfect body. It is the transformation of his original body. And that, I think, is the image that we should employ when we think about the new earth. The earth will be destroyed, and out of its ruins, God will resurrect it to a perfect, sin-free, eternal earth. Ah, that means something wonderful about the life to come. The life to come will be on the planet Earth. It will be replete with mountains and plains, with rivers and trees, with the smell of a new day after a spring rain, and all the things that gladden our hearts now. All that's missing is the stain of sin and the effects of rebellion. Okay, there will be a new earth, which will be this earth, but transformed in such a way that the curse, the fall, the, the limitations, and the things that bring death and alienation from God are gone. But what are we to think of the new heavens? Is heaven the dwelling place of God to be renewed? That would seem impossible because heaven never was subject to decay. But here's an important thing to know. In the New Testament, and especially in the writings of Paul, the, the same word heaven is used in three different ways. It can mean heaven as in the atmosphere over our heads, or it can mean heaven as in space or the cosmos. And finally, it can mean heaven to refer to the dwelling place of God. So when Revelation 21 verse 1 speaks of a new heaven, we should note that it is not speaking of the dwelling place of God. It is speaking about the cosmos, the heavens in the sense of what we call space, the sun, moon, stars, the planets. So when John says he saw a new heaven and a new earth, he means he saw a new universe or a new created order or a renewed, redeemed created order. And when he says there was no longer any sea, he means that the barrier that keeps this created order from the dwelling place of God is removed. There's a clear accessibility from this world to the very throne room of God. Well, let's continue to read Revelation 21 verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Suddenly, we see the next new thing, a new Jerusalem. What does that mean? Well, we know that David captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites in around 1010 BC. It became the capital of the people of God. The name Jerusalem means city of peace, but the city has been anything but that. One website that I've not been able to verify said the city has been destroyed twice, attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. That sounds about right. And yet this is the city that both Psalm 46 and 87 call the city of God. Psalm 48 calls it the joy of the whole earth. Nehemiah, Daniel, and Isaiah call it the holy city. Psalm 50 calls it the perfection of beauty. Psalm 46 verse 4 calls it the city of God, the habitation of the Most High. That's because the temple was built there. It became the center of worship. It's also the city where our Lord was crucified and became our substitute Passover lamb. Now, this holy city described in Revelation, which is everything that the old Jerusalem hoped for but never became, this new holy city becomes down and it touches the earth. And in some fashion, the boundaries between earth and the dwelling place of God have been breached. And just in case you're still wondering if this is actually a physical place, the exact dimensions of the place are given. I've always remembered its dimensions in this way. It's about as long as from Vancouver to Winnipeg and as wide as that and as high as well. If you, if you can't get that image, it's about 1,400 miles long, wide, and high. But if you're still struggling with heaven and the life to come, 
And do we live in heaven or on earth? Let me help you. Listen to Ephesians 1 verse 10. God's plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Think of it this way. When Jesus became a man, he never ceased to be God. He's fully God and fully man. Now then, heaven is the dwelling place of God. Earth is the dwelling place of men. Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, forever brings together heaven and earth. Yes, we live on the new earth for eternity, an earth with sights and sounds and smells and mountains and plains and waterfalls and eagles crying in the heavens, a real dwelling place. But the new Jerusalem has come down to earth, and the gates of that city are never closed, and the righteous nations bring their glory into the city, and their cultural practices are made new. And that's it. You know, answers to some of the questions that we ask. My prayer and the prayer of all of us here at Back to the Bible Canada is that when we ask questions, that we will see that as an invitation to learn the deeper truths of Scripture and to be transformed in the ways that we think. So keep asking questions, but don't just ask questions. Read your Bible faithfully and find that the Bible has more answers than you had ever imagined. John, uh, from both of your questions today, so many other questions evolve. Uh, but, you know, I, I'm interested in what you said about heaven, particularly at the beginning of your message where you talked about the fact, you know, really there's so many people, so many Christians that really don't understand. And, 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 and when they come to the end of life, that's one of their greatest concerns. They don't know what's next. Yeah, I think because they spent a lifetime nurturing a Greek ideal of heaven— and, um, and so heaven seems like it's a disembodied future, and it's also erythral. Some, you know, they don't even know what spiritual actually means. But they think about everything that they've loved, and it's all being lost to them now, rather than uh, just embracing to say nothing is being lost. In fact, it just gets better. Um, so the idea of uh, the biblical view of heaven the new heavens and the new earth, uh, our life here in a real earth with a real physical body, all that is so foreign to many people. In fact, Ben, I'm going to say I have a number of times heard Christians finding, you know, even taking offense when I, when I speak about heaven because they just think it can't be. Well, I really encourage people to check out your Heaven series, which talks about so much of what we look forward to. Thanks for joining us today on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. As the month winds down, we want to make sure you take the opportunity to be part of our Ministry Match Pledge that's been provided by a group of ministry friends. This group has committed a match pledge of $75,000 to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada so that for every dollar or donation you make, they'll match it up to $75,000. If you've been considering offering a gift to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, In Doubt, Laugh Again, or Truth in Life Today, this would be an excellent time to double your impact. 
So to be clear, if you make a gift today of $5,500-$1,000, your gift will automatically be doubled up to $75,000. Would you help us take full advantage of this opportunity today? All you need to do is make your donation by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or give securely online at backtothebible.ca.